I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Una Manian. On her new novel, Tell Me What I Am. Una Mannion was born in Philadelphia and now lives in County Sligo Island. She is the author of A Crooked Tree, which we spoke about on Little Atoms a couple of years back, and has won numerous prizes for her work, including the Hennessy Emerging Poetry Award, and the Doolin, Court, Allingham and Ambit Short Story Prizes. Her work has been published in The Guardian, The Irish Times, The Lonely Crowd, Cranog and Bear Fiction. And she edits The Cormorant, a broadsheet of prose and poetry. And today we're going to be talking about Una's latest novel, which is Tell Me What I Am. Una, welcome back to Little Adams. Thank you, Neil, for having me. Hello. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe the novel then. So I I suppose that novel is probably described by publishers as, as literary crime. And I suppose I think it might be a book about memory. So I sort of see it as literary fiction. But I guess what the book is, um, it opens with a woman who heads off to work. She's a mother and a sister. She works as a NICU nurse. She leaves for work and she doesn't arrive. And she's been in a sort of sustained custody battle with her um, estranged partner. and her sister believes that he has something to do with her disappearance. However, she also has a history of some mental health issues and some are arguing that she's voluntarily disappeared, um, that she's left. And so for me, the book is narrated by the daughter. It begins, the daughter is four years old when she disappears and the father takes the daughter away to a different state. And it's narrated by the the daughter and the aunt. Um, And so it's a dual narrative. And I think for me, it's about how we remember and maybe don't, I mean, there is, there's been some violence in this, this relationship. And I suppose the violence of the domestic violence, but but for me, like the violence of forgetting, you know, that when you forget somebody and in the novel, when he takes the daughter away from the mother's family, um, the strange father, the strange partner takes the daughter away you know, who's there to help remember the mother. And I was interested in really about how we remember. And I think that story of the missing person is something that creates a lot of cultural anxiety. You know, it's a story that doesn't end, it doesn't have closure. And I read, I was reading a lot, and I I suppose I knew of a case as well, 
where, you know, this, someone keeps vigil, you know, and in this case, it's the sister who can't let go and tries to keep, tries to do due vigilance, but she's afraid if she ever like drops, you know, she'll miss a clue or she'll somehow be responsible for, for not recovering her sister or finding out what happened. Um, And Dina Garvey is the sister who has disappeared. Um, So at the beginning of the novel, we do, you know, we do see some of her in in flashback, but the, the novel starts off with her disappearance. And so tell us tell us a little bit more about who she is and something about her troubled past. Yeah, so um, Dina Garvey, you know, she, she grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs. Um, she heads off to nursing school. And I suppose for, like, many people we know, she has, she's suffered with depression. She has a breakdown while she's in college and has had and made an attempt on her own life. And there's something about her, I think, that we probably all recognize in friends of ours, you know, that there's a vulnerability and an openness. And when she meets this man, Lucas, uh, Lucas Chevalier, he's, he's very, um, he's from Vermont. He's, you know, he's someone who's hunted and been on the water, you know, fishing on the water all his life. He's kind of has this, he's not quite off the grid, but that kind of mentality of, you know, homesteader, you know, survivalist, and just that kind of man who seems to have all the answers. And for someone who's vulnerable, that can be quite attractive, that this person who makes the decisions, and she meets him, she's just started working as a NICU nurse, you know, her life is really together. And she meets him at this like critical time. And within, you know, a few weeks, she's moved in with him. And I suppose in some ways, there's the book is about coercive control, you know, about the ways in which he begins to chip away at her family relationships, um, at her friendships. And I, I guess I, w- I was really interested in, you know, that idea of erasure, you know, that how someone begins to disappear, even when they're with us, you know, that they, they begin to diminish or make themselves smaller to accommodate this other person who takes up so much space. And so that's that's Dina and her sister, her younger sister, Nessa, who is one of the narrators in the book, is way more feisty, way more belligerent and mouthy and really doesn't take shit from people. She's so she's different than her sister, Dina, who's who's softer. And but when her sister goes missing, something happens with Nessa where she just can't really move on. She gets stuck. You know, it becomes, you know, because at the time that Dina goes missing, she's living with her sister, Nessa, and her daughter. And, you know, the three of them are having a life in the in Philadelphia, in the city together. And then suddenly the daughter is taken away because the father gets full custody when the mother is is not accounted for. And he refuses third party visitation that the family apply for. So they're living with this girl and then suddenly they are not allowed to have any contact with her whatsoever. Tell us a bit more about Ruby then. So Ruby, who is Dina and Lucas's daughter, we basically see her grow up. This is like a coming-of-age novel as well, because although it it sort of starts when she's about four years old, but we also see segments of her life before that as well. But then the novel goes as she as she grows older into like a, a late teenager. So tell us something about Ruby and, and who she becomes. Yeah, so Ruby, she's four years old when her mother disappears, and she's just one of... I. I think she's um, one of those kids that's quite gregarious. And she has this, um, through her mother, she has this extended family that's 
you know, they're Italian and Irish. And so there's this kind of, it's, you know, there's always people around and there's always stories and laughter and she's the center of it. She's the first grandchild. And so that she's grown the first four years of her life are just completely full of people. And when her father gains full custody, he takes her to Vermont, um, to the Champlain Islands, which are these sort of, I, I suppose, inland islands. And I, I suppose I deliberately was looking for like island spaces. Uh, I was, the title comes from The Tempest, um, Shakespeare's The Tempest, where Prospero takes his daughter Miranda. They're, you know, they, they're basically exiled and they're on an island and they grow up. And I'm quite interested in this sort of absent mothers in Shakespeare and the way in which fathers control narratives, you know, they, they, they control what, you know, Ham, you know, Polonius and Hamlet tells Ophelia, I'll tell you what to think. And in The Tempest, Prospero, the father, is just constantly telling everyone to shut up and he'll tell them what they remember and what their memories are. And I just, I got, I was really interested in that idea of like, if you can't remember those early years of your life and you can't remember your mother and somebody else lays down the memories for you and what that does. So Ruby, we see her at age four and then we don't meet her again until she's being homeschooled and she's she's aged eight. And so there are these absent years that the book never touches. We don't know. There's some moments later in the book where her grandmother tells her a little bit about those years, but these years in which she's sort of made to forget where she's come from. And her father rears her in in the outdoors. And so there's something quite compelling about the father, like what he introduces his daughter to, you know, she can um, fish, she can hunt, um, which is very common in Vermont, like, you know, children hunt. It's um, not in Ireland, and I'm assuming England, it's quite unusual, but not in Vermont. But she's very much someone who's learned to kind of fend for herself, understands nature and has a relationship with nature. And I guess I'm interested in the idea in which like nature itself becomes a kind of mother or a parent or sustains us or gives us something, which I, I didn't intentionally do, but I think it's there in my first book as well. But so Ruby, she's been homeschooled. She's totally isolated. And then because of the intervention of the aunt, she's the fact that her curriculum, her homeschooling curriculum hasn't been submitted to the state of Vermont is reported by her aunt. Now, she doesn't know that. And it forces Lucas to send her to school. And so she ends up going to school. And she's actually, despite her isolation for four years, she's incredibly gregarious. She loves people. And so, I mean, I guess that's part of one of the things that sustains her. She's had all this trauma but she's still really open to people and to experiences and she makes friends, but she's still quite isolated by the father. So she goes off to, you know, she goes to school. She ends up when she goes to middle school, she takes the bus. And I guess as what happens is that little things, she starts to have fleeting memories of things, um, you know, memories that come through like sensory experiences. And at the same time, she receives a package when she's in about uh, fourth grade in, I guess it's similar to the fourth class in Ireland. Um, And in the package, there's a picture of her with her mother. And the date on the picture, um, it's, you know, we don't know who sent the package, whether it's her mother who, who sent this package to her care of the school. But on the back of the photograph of her and her mother is the date. And it's from 2004. 
And her father's always told her that her mother left her and abandoned her when she was two. And so she starts to have questions and those questions keep surfacing and she begins to maybe piece together elements of her past bit by bit through the novel. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Una Mannion and we're talking about her book, Tell Me What I Am. And Una, I wanted to talk a bit more about Lucas Chevalier, who is Ruby's father, to begin the second half. And as you mentioned in the first part, he's, he's, he's a compelling character. He's not like entirely unsympathetic. There's a lot that's attractive about him. And you know, which which shows us what was attractive to Dina about him, for instance. And also through later on in the book, through Clover, his mother, who's another really great compelling character, we get the hints that there might be some sort of like generational trauma there as well in the in that family. So um tell us something more about who Lucas is. Yeah, so it's funny, um Lucas was someone I found difficult to focus on and I kept having to try to look at him, even though I was trying to avoid looking at him. So as I went through redrafts, I suppose I started to focus a little bit more in on domestic scenes because I didn't want him to be a caricature of like someone who, you know, who engages in coercive control, because the truth is, is that so many men who exhibit those behaviors or who control in that way are often very compelling characters. 
and they are nuanced and and part of what's dangerous is that they can often be quite charismatic and i think lucas has this presence that when he's in a room he's in a room and everyone's aware of him and so i wanted to show why dina like someone who's vulnerable who might be drawn to someone who doesn't give advice but gives answers you know that kind of someone who seems to know what to do or always has an answer that he's compelling in that way and then he has this whole link to vermont and to like you know he's he's not quite a bear grills but something like he's an outdoorsy guy and he, that's his he's really interested in that you teach people you know he's teaching his daughter how to to fend for herself how to survive how to be resilient how to so he's teaching her these skills that are quite incredible you know as for a child to grow up with and she's attuned to nature and at the same time you know the narratives are graded they're going back and forth between Nessa who's remembering things that happened to her sister and Ruby and what we're seeing what's happening to Ruby and we're starting to see parallels is that as Ruby becomes more independent becoming her own person where her father isn't a god anymore and she has questions or she's just trying to break out and, and be free and have agency as her own person, you can begin to see um, the parallels of what threatens him, his inability sometimes to control himself because he tries to control everyone around him. And so I hope that he isn't a caricature. You know, I'm, I'm kind of conscious, quite conscious that there's a lot of books written about about missing women and about domestic violence and there's a lot of people who for whom this is like a really close experience and I suppose for me I was really interested I'm interested in Lucas as a character and that dynamic and you know at one point later in the book they're listening to a documentary there's a documentary playing on the television about basically it's about um in this experiment called inescapable shock that was done you know it's a bit like Pavlov's dogs it's you know behavioral psychologists were looking at how when you randomly shock an animal for no reason, but you just randomly shock them, how they lose all of their ability to escape and will just lie down and take it. Whereas an animal that hasn't had those kind of random experiences of shock and pain will fight to survive. And Dean is really aware of what happened, what's happened to her because of Lucas. But she was still in it and it was still incredibly powerful. And, you know, she still went back multiple times despite the violence. You mentioned also earlier that there are ideas of identity in the novel. Ruby, obviously, Nessa is concerned that Ruby will, will forget who her family are as she, as she gradually grows up and is estranged from them, for instance. And I was struck by Nessa, who works in the arts in some capacity and works on various different projects in Philadelphia that are to do with memory and memories of the city and how the city is being changed and replaced. Tell us something about that. Yeah, Nessa is, um, I guess she's a curator, is, is the job that she's ended up doing. But she started out working in art preservation. And, and what happened to her is that she started to work with a bunch of Philly artists who were looking at kind of areas that were disappearing in the city, you know, so in the built environment of the city, the ways in which like gentrification is writing over um, a previous script, a previous experience. And, you know, so the word that I, I suppose 
the epigraph that I've used in the book is one of the epigraphs is a quote from Thomas de Quincey called the plimsist of the human brain. And this idea that the plimsist is where you have a manuscript with the text and another text gets written over it. So the manuscript, the canvas or whatever it might be is being used again. And the suggestion is that those earlier traces, those source traces never quite disappear. And I suppose metaphorically, like the book is about that. But for Nessa, this is the work that she does. So she she is really interested, like one of the scenes is she goes in with an artist and they go into um, a disused mental institute. It was, it was a hospital that has become like, I guess a site where people are like urban explorers are going at night. And she goes in with an artist whose mother had spent time there. And there have been like, there have been physical restraints as well as chemical restraints and a really appalling experience of someone who was like suffering from depression in the 1960s. And the building is about to be demolished. And they do, um, he has interviewed his mother about her experience in those rooms and they film, they film her talking and pictures of her childhood in that room. Um, and then it's going to be exhibited in the museum. And so Nessa, all the time, I suppose, is thinking about how, about memory and how memory, um, where does it reside and how it, it sometimes resides physically, but it also resides like in a community of people, despite the fact that something else is being laid over. And I suppose in terms of Ruby, you know, Ruby has these, you know, her narrative her memory has been told to her by her father laid over you know her, her previous experiences and i suppose i really wanted at some level that there would still be some residual something that commemorates or remembers her mother um despite the efforts of erasure so nessa's work as an artist i suppose was directly connected to ruby's experience and we also see that idea of Nessa's work mirrored later on in the book with Ruby. Lucas has always been extremely cagey about his own past. And then they take a trip to Montreal and he happens to let something slip of his past, which is to do with an area of Montreal of where his ancestor came from, where something simpler has happened. Yeah, so... um I actually, I came across this by accident. Um, I was looking and I, I think it's really interesting when you're writing about a place and where the place starts to like offer you things or speak back to you in a way, because I was interested in Montreal. I was interested that they would go to Montreal, trying to find like um, where there might've been like Irish communities in Montreal, or I stumbled upon this place called um, Goose Village, which was like a it's also called Victoria Town, but it was it was basically the place where immigrants came, uh, Irish immigrants coming off the ships, particularly during the famine time and coming off coffin ships. And there was this whole vibrant community that basically was bulldozed away in the 1960s. So it was Italian and Irish primarily in immigrant populations. And I suppose it was considered an eyesore on the city and they literally just pushed it away, you know, physically. But Lucas's grandmother was from there. And his, and so it one of the, that's the thing that slips. But one of the things that he shows her is a plaque that was erected by Irish workers when they were building the road. They encountered the bones of people who, the people who died on the famine ships, because I mean, the death rate was just phenomenal. 
Um, when they arrived and people were sick, they were put into these, you know, basically they were sequestered and they were put into mass graves. And when the Irish workers came and encountered this, they refused to keep working because they, they're, you know, this culturally just the respect for the dead. And what they did then is they, out of their own pockets, they raised money to, I suppose, create a marker, um, you know, a, a gravestone of sorts to commemorate those who had died and before they would continue working on the road. And Lucas brings Ruby to that site. And he also let slip that Ruby's mother was Irish, and which is something she didn't know or she vaguely knew because a lot of these things are there, you know, but they they start to get you know, these little threads pulling them up, you know, just these glimpses or, you know, flashes of memory. So to finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll read, I think, from the very, from the beginning of the novel. Um, and just to set it up a little bit, the day that Dina disappears, they're, they don't know where she's gone. And Nessa, earlier in the day, rings Lucas's house to talk to Ruby, because Ruby's away with him for the weekend. Um, and she needs a reason for ringing, because she's never done that before. And she pretends that the, the goldfish they had had baby fish. I just want to explain that. And also to remind um, listeners that Dina is a NICU nurse. So she looks after premature infants in a hospital. So, yeah, I, th- I think I've said enough about the overall plot that the rest will make sense. So this is um, the 8th of February, 2004 in Philadelphia. By the time Nessa arrived at the bookstore, Dina had been missing for 13 hours. She waited in the dark doorway on Walnut Street. The window was full of bursting red hearts. Valentine's Day was coming. The temperature had fallen to the low 20s and her cheeks were raw. Calm down. She stamped her feet. The sidewalk was empty, but the traffic was steady. Her eyes teared from the cold, the oncoming headlights dissolving to streaks of white. She squeezed them shut and opened them again, looking toward the corner of 18th. Lucas and Ruby always came through the square. Nessa could feel a cold ache low on her back, blocks of ice tightening in the depths of her, like she might never be warm again. Her mother told her once that people felt fear in their kidneys. She pushed her hands deep into her pockets and counted backward from five. When she looked again, Ruby was there at the crossing, waving frantically as she and Lucas stepped onto the street. They reached the sidewalk and Ruby let go of his hand and hurtled toward Nessa, the pom-pom on her knitted hat bobbing. Lucas walked behind at a deliberate pace, carrying Ruby's little suitcase. Nessa crouched, arms out, and Ruby flew straight into her. Her neck smelled like them, their house, their kitchen, the fabric softener Dina used. Are all the babies okay? What? For a moment, Nessa thought Ruby was asking about the babies in the hospital, the ones Dina took care of. The new baby fish, Ruby said. Nessa remembered then the phone call and the phantom babies. She and Joey had gone to the pet store earlier. He'd said they better. Ruby would be excited. There were no little goldfish, so they'd bought a bag of minnows. Oh, they're great. There's so many. They're excited to see you. Lucas stepped into the doorway. Nessa's arms tightened around Ruby, and she took a step back. Nessa? She didn't answer and avoided eye contact. Lucas's gaze had always unnerved her. 
The first time they'd met, he reminded her of the replicant in Blade Runner, the one played by Rutger Hauer, the very blue eyes, the stare. Nessa lowered her head, breathed in Ruby again. Nessa, can we get ice cream? Ruby's cheeks were bright from the cold. Yep, two scoops even to celebrate the baby fish. I thought there was just one fish in the tank, Lucas said. He checked his watch. Dina said she might be running behind. They've had a late admission and they're short-staffed, so I'll just go ahead with Ruby now. Nessa couldn't hear her own voice. Didn't know if she'd squeaked or shouted out. No, we'll wait for Dina. Oh, didn't she call you? No. Nessa tried to think. Hmm. She said she would. Did she call you at all today? She knew she might be running late behind because this really sick baby was admitted late. I haven't talked to Dina since Friday. Yeah, okay, but it's well below freezing. It's too cold for Ruby out here. We'll just head home now. You can talk to Dina later. He spoke without looking at her. I told you, I'll give Ruby to her mother, no one else. Ruby's face creased with worry. Please, Dad. I need to see the fish babies and Nemo, and we're getting ice cream. Please, 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 I want to go with Nessa. She buried her face back into her aunt's neck. Her breath was warm. Okay, Nessa, said to Lucas, but she didn't let go of Ruby. There's about ten fish babies. You have to come up with a lot of names. They're called larvae, said Lucas. She's an intelligent person. We don't dumb things down. They both stared at the traffic as it traveled west. Across from them, old gas lamps lit up the oak and linden trees along Rittenhouse Square. Nessa's first job in the city had been in an Irish restaurant a few blocks over. She had just started college. Those autumn mornings cutting through the square, the leaves changing color on the cusp of a whole new life. Ruby squirmed to get down and Nessa let her, but kept hold of Ruby's hand. Neither of them was wearing gloves or mittens, and Nessa tried to warm the small hand in hers. Dina wasn't coming. Lucas was going to take Ruby. It was happening. So I've been talking to Una Mannion. We've been talking about her novel, Tell Me What I Am, which is out now from Faber. Una, thanks so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.